0: Well, I think we can all note that one of the things that is lacking in our day is the ability to let bygones be bygones. It seems to be common in our cultural ethos that forgiveness is not held in high regard, the ability to just let things go. And if you watch, read, or listen to any measure of political news, you certainly see this reality to be true. There is no opportunity to be forgiven. With one great exception, New Year's. In a lot of ways, New Year's Day seems to be the secular day of atonement. That day when all of the past year's sins can be forgotten And forgiven and we can all begin afresh with a brand new start as the zombies wrote in 1968 you don't have to worry all your worried days are gone this will be our year took a long time to come But if we consider this reality more closely, we will find that even the forgiveness and absolution that is promised on the first day of the year comes with some strings attached. Not unlike how Christmas has come with some strings attached according to secular tradition, this wonderful and gracious and glorious holiday, the figurehead himself is watching He knows when you're sleeping, he's watching when you're awake, and he has this list of folks, those good and those naughty, so be good for goodness sake. Well, New Year's in a lot of ways is similar. Sure, there's an opportunity beginning when you wake up tomorrow to be forgiven of all the bad things you did last year, assuming you're able to make up for them, perhaps This year, you desire for your sins of caloric intake to be forgiven. Well, that is available to you if this next year, a caloric deficit would make up for those. Your sins of poor spending might be forgiven. This might be the year to start afresh. Of course, there's still a lot of debt to be paid off first, right? If we think about it, What seems like a fresh start, what seems like forgiveness, what seems to be free absolution is just a fresh list of to-dos and to-don'ts. As Oprah Winfrey recently celebrated, cheers to a new year, a fresh chance to get it right. Well, the problem with a fresh chance to get it right is we have the equal and opposite opportunity to screw it up again. And for those of us who have lived enough New Year cycles, we know that this is generally what happens. Well, in our passage for this morning from Isaiah, we see a text that speaks about new beginnings. It speaks about a fresh start. But for those of us who understand what fresh starts mean in our culture, it's easy to look at Isaiah 62 as a bit of a bait and switch. Well, this morning, I want to contend that there's really two frameworks in which we can look at this passage. There's probably many, many more, but generally speaking, we can look at Isaiah 62, according to the religion of New Year's resolutions, or we can spread Christmas out for one more week, which I am encouraging us to consider doing, as our hymn choices this morning have already suggested. Well, as we approach this morning's text this morning, I want to do so under three headings. First, a God not silent. Second, a people not perfect. And finally, a Savior who celebrates. Well, if you'll recall from a few weeks ago during our Advent uh, series, we heard from Isaiah 61, the passage preceding the one that we find ourselves in this morning. And we, and we heard about this preacher who is to come, a preacher who will preach good news to those oppressed, for good news to those who have been held captive, and particularly good news to those who are oppressed and held captive to the reality of sin and death. In many ways, this sermon, if you will, continues in our passage for this morning, and you'll see it from the language of speech that continues. Verse 1 says, "'For Zion's sake,' our passage begins." I will not keep silent. There are some here who would wish that preachers would keep silent a bit more often, but, but this is God who is preaching. This is no normal speech. For with God's speech, action comes with it. For Zion's sake, I will not refrain from acting, it could say here. God's talk is not cheap. God's word does stuff. For those parents here, you might know that our words don't always accomplish the ends that we set out for them. That as much as we can speak or yell into a room, there remains clothes on the floor and Legos waiting for the bottom of bare feet. But not so with God's word. When God speaks, things happen. Let there be light and there is light. And so we find here in Isaiah 62 a God who promises to not keep his productive speech to himself. And he does this for the sake of his people, for Zion and for Jerusalem, who are in the forefront here, but ultimately all of God's elect. He himself will act and this action brings forth several new realities according to our passage this morning. First, the righteousness of his people will be seen to all the nations to the point that it will appear as a bright light. Think of a, a picture of a lighthouse, a light that shines into darkness, that, that, that can guide people to safety. This is what God's people will look like according to Isaiah 62. Like, like a city on a hill. And this righteousness will be so compelling that it will look to the nations like salvation. If we think about what we considered in the previous chapter a few weeks ago, we see how justice or, or righteousness is to the poor and to those who are downcast and to those who have experienced injustice, truly salvation. And that's what we see here. we sense this. We desire salvation from the lack of injustice in our own day. We long for things to be made right. Righteousness really does look like salvation when we see that with righteousness comes a correcting of all that is wrong. Well, in this prophecy, Isaiah says that God's very people will look like that kind of saving righteousness. They will be a bastion of God's righteousness and a justice for all who are oppressed. And as the prophet goes on, he says that this righteousness, with it will come a, a spectacular beauty. God's people will be like a, like a jeweled crown in the hands of the Lord. Like a, like a royal diadem, a royal turban. That is to say that God's people will not only be vested with beauty and glory, but a royal status. So much so that the kings of the nations will see this glory, this righteousness, this salvation, and they will bend a knee to God's people. But perhaps most importantly, perhaps what would be most poignant for those who receive this message in exile, was that God himself would rejoice over his people. I mean, this is a, a, an entire change in their identity. They would no longer be called desolate. They would no longer be set apart from God but set apart to God and their name would be changed to my delight is in her. Talk about comforting words for people who time and time again have not gotten it right. A promise that God would delight and rejoice over his people would be a, a massive shift in how they saw God and how they assumed he saw them. Zephaniah 3 uses very similar language. It says that in this day, God will rejoice over his people. And the prophet adds that he will exult over them with singing. This is the kind of delight that God will have in his people. A delight that causes God himself to sing over his own. What a beautiful picture of God's joy for his own. But as beautiful as this new beginning is, as beautiful as this fresh start that is promised, is it too good to be true? Israel has, for many, many years, many generations, lacked the attainment of this kind of status. So, at first, we have a God who is not silent. We also, next, have a people who are not perfect bright, shining righteousness that looks like a torch of salvation, glory, a royal crown, the status of a bride. These are the things that Isaiah promises for God's people, but it is a far cry from their reality. They find themselves in exile because the nations have not seen their righteousness. On the contrary, Israel has become more like the nations themselves, as we've seen as you see, as you read through Isaiah, they themselves has, have given themselves over to the idolatry of the nations around them, to pagan worship. This people that were called to be set apart, this people that were called to be holy, meets their demise precisely because they are not acting as those set apart. They are not acting as a peculiar people in which God has called them to be. They, they weren't a city on a hill. They didn't look like salvation, far from it. They didn't look like a beautiful bride. In fact, when Israel is talked about as a bride in the prophets, it's not the kind of bride you want to be. We find them being spoken of as one who is unfaithful, sinful, sorry, a frumpy bride with an exile from the land of promise to prove it. So how would Israel attain to such righteousness that is promised here? How would they attain to such glory and and, and royalty and, and this appearance of beauty? Well, perhaps what is so frightening for Israel as they consider these things is that they've heard it before. I mean, these are not new goals for God's people, are they? These are not new resolutions. There is a sense in which we can read this text as a motivational speech for a new start, but, but this really isn't a new one. I mean, Israel was called to be these things from the very beginning, called to be righteous among the nations, called to show forth salvation to the Gentiles, They were called to be spotless. They were called to be a royal people, a possession of God. It's built into their very founding to be these things. So Isaiah is promising this fresh start, but is it really that fresh? I think it's scary for us because these things are built into our founding as the Christian church as well, aren't they? We know the law. We've, we've heard it. We hear it week by week. We feel it moment by moment. We know the things that we are called to do. We know that we are called to be a city on a hill. We know that we are called to be the kind of people that the world will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That we'll be the kind of people that the nations would know our hospitality. That all the people around us would know and identify us as those that care for the needy. Well, how's that going for everyone? It's a good thing we'll get a new chance tomorrow at resetting things, right? I mean, even if we take the nations out of it, how about the people of our own street? Do they know us as these type of people? Do they know our good works? Do they know our hospitality? Do they even know our names? Did our personal Christmas list this year reflect God's call for us to be a peculiar people or did it, as it so often does, reflect our desire to just look like the people around us? I mean, we've heard these things before. Yes, we're to be righteous. We are to be holy. We are to be blameless. We are to be set apart. Israel has heard it before, and yet here they are, and here we are. And if this is just a new shot at a new beginning, how do we know that this will not just be another failed project? Well, the difference is Christmas. And not the Christmas of the world with naughty and nice list, but but a Christmas where one who requires righteousness celebrates to give it to his own. So finally, that's what I want to consider this morning, a savior who celebrates. So what does all this have to do with Christmas? And isn't Christmas over anyway? Isn't that kind of a... last year's news. Well, it's not. It's the seventh day of Christmas, so let's keep going. Let's not throw it away too quickly. But what does a God who is not silent have to do with Christmas anyway? Well, if you've been around for our special events for the last few weeks, uh, last Sunday, our lesson and carol service, uh, the week prior, our Advent feast, we heard together a number of readings. We heard of the fall of mankind in the garden. We heard of Israel's falls throughout history and their times in exile. But we also heard the manifold promises of a God who is not silent, a God who acts, a God who has promised that the future for his people would not be a failed project. We heard of a God who will come and do new things, among his people. Namely, this new thing is that he'll come and do the work himself. If you were here last Sunday evening, our our final reading as we stood with, with candles in hand, we heard of God's plan to speak. We heard about how God will break silence to send his very word into the word into the world. We heard this, And the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word for us became flesh and dwelt among us. And in Him we have seen the glory of God filled with grace and truth. John, in chapter 1 of his gospel, will go on to say that the law was revealed through Moses. That, that way of climbing the ladder to God, that way of upward mobility, that, that way of New Year's resolutions, if you will, was revealed through Moses. But the way of Christmas came down in Jesus Christ. And as Jesus shows up, people begin to notice some things. They notice things that are true of Jesus that were supposed to be true of his people. We heard it in our New Testament reading this morning. They begin to see the things that Isaiah promised in Jesus. Notice the promises. The promises of Isaiah in our passage this morning is that Zion's salvation shall go forth as brightness. That all the nations will see it. When Jesus is brought to Simeon and Simeon sees him, he begins to sing. And what does he sing? He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, a salvation that you have prepared for all peoples. He says this salvation is a light, a a brightness for the revelation to the nations. Isaiah prophesies that Kings will come and see the glory of God's people. Well, Simeon declares upon seeing Jesus that this one is the glory of Israel. We saw in our New Testament reading that Jesus from his earliest days as a lawkeeper, he is shown to us as one who is righteous, one who is holy in all the ways that his people were not. So is Isaiah 62 talking about Jesus or is it talking about God's people? Yes. Because you are united by faith to Christ, the one who is these things. All these things that God promises his people are accomplished by his son and given to you. You can rightly look at the promises of Isaiah and say, there is no way we pull that off. God looks at these promises and says, no way they pull that off. And so God himself steps into the world to pull these things off on your behalf. And not only is he able to do it, not only is he mighty to save Isaiah says that it is his very delight to do so. Look at verse 2 again. It says that God's people will be called by a new name. What what is this name? He tells us in verse 4, this new name is my delight is in her. Why would he call us by that name? Well, Isaiah tells us, for the Lord delights in you. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Your name, dear Christian, is not by the skin of your teeth or just made it in or God puts up with you for a while. Your name that has been given to you by God is my delight. And he is so delighted in you that he delights to send his one and only son into the world, not out of some sense of strange obligation, but because he rejoices and celebrates to do so. He is delighted to make you righteous when you are unable to do it yourself. He is delighted to make you beautiful when by nature you are frumpy. And God doesn't just put up with you He's not waiting for you to finally get it right in 2024 because that's not how God's love for you works. Luther says it this way the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. He goes on to explain that this way. He says that the love of God which lives in man loves sinners evil persons, fools, and weaklings, in order to make them righteous, good, wise, and strong. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good, Luther continues. He says, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. He concludes, for this reason, the love of man avoids sinners and evil persons. But the love of Christ says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. British author and poet Alex Moritz muses a new year, a new chapter, a new verse, or just the same old story. Ultimately, we write it. The choice is yours. But the glory of Christmas is that God comes down to write your story for you. Not that you have a new opportunity to get it right. But that he gives you his own life. That he places his righteous name upon you. Just as we saw this morning in the waters of baptism. And he is not a miser. As he does it, he doesn't do it under compulsion, but rejoices all the while. For you are his beloved. And because of that, his claim upon you is irrevocable. And that, dear Christian, is what we celebrate this Christmas. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. a royal diadem diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Let's pray.